This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. Uh, I'm looking forward to today's program uh, because our guest today is someone who has been on our program before. Um, it's uh, Dr. Jessica uh, Brontes Figueredo. Uh, Dr. Brontes Figueredo is an infectious disease specialist. Um, she is fellowship trained in infectious diseases. And uh, it's good for everybody to know that when we use the term fellowship trained, that means after completing all the requirements to practice in a specialty such as internal medicine in this case, or in my case, neurology, you then go on for additional training in a specific subset of that specialty, and in her case, infectious diseases. And uh, she always has uh, good uh, information for us. I'm hoping everyone likes the new format here. Uh, over the last several months, we have gone to not taking live calls on the air so that we can get more information out to our listeners. And instead, uh, we encourage everyone to send questions to info at alessimd.com. And in doing so, we've been able to get these questions and either refer them to experts or answer them live on the air or in a subsequent program. So, um, you know, the only thing it does, it, it takes away from is the fact that many people like to call in and give their opinions. But to be honest with you, in a one-hour broadcast, this is really not an opinion show. Um, but if you want to send me your opinion, um, uh, happy to uh, read it. Uh, someone sent me an opinion last week. Uh, basically, last week I mentioned that things were dire in Idaho in the sense that there were no ICU beds available. Many people had to go to the state of Washington. Uh, you know, you have to understand that at the time Idaho had 57% uh, of all their ICU beds filled with people with COVID as opposed to 7% of Connecticut. A and I was reminded that uh, we have had more deaths from COVID here in Connecticut as opposed to Idaho. Well, that's an interesting statistic, uh, but you have to understand, you have to see when those deaths occurred. So in Connecticut, most of our deaths occurred before we had a vaccine. In Idaho, they have only about, I believe it's like 20% of the population vaccinated. So their deaths all occurred since we had a vaccine thus making those deaths avoidable. And then early on in the, the, the pandemic, you could see that in Connecticut, we live in a closer relationship to neighboring states. People live closer in apartment houses and things such as that, things you don't see very much in Idaho. Um, so, and also you have to look at the denominator. Uh, you know, we have done in Connecticut 11 million tests 
Okay, so our st statistics, when we give them, they're based on 11 million total tests. Idaho has done 1.8 million total tests. So um, you need to really look at the whole picture. But let's be honest. And when you look at vaccination, forget about this, throw out all the statistics. Here's what we do know. We know that if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to become infected. We also know that you are less likely to spread the COVID-19 infection to others. We also know that you are less likely to become ill from COVID-19. And when I say ill, I'm specifically focusing on hospitalizations, ICU, long-haul symptoms that we're going to talk about in the second part of today's show, in the second uh, segment. But if you are vaccinated, you are less likely to die. That's the only thing you need to know. You could spend forever on the Internet looking at statistics and who's got it, that, or who had this, that, the other thing. Death and the number of vaccinations are what is key here. And I'm proud to say here in Connecticut, at least we have 69% of our population fully vaccinated and 77% at least having one dose. So at least being in the process. And that number is going up, whether it be because of mandates or whether it be because the vaccine-hesitant people are coming up with more information that points them towards vaccination. As a nation, our numbers are terrible. 712,000 Americans are now dead with COVID-19-related illnesses. Only 57% of the United States is fully vaccinated. And 67% has one dose. We're hoping that's going to change when we have a vaccine available for children. And, uh, well, let's let's talk about that. The Pfizer vaccine for children um, is now where hopefully we're at the threshold of getting this approved for 5 to 11-year-old children. It's one-third of the dose of an adult. Uh, I have some questions. I'm not sure if it's a two-dose uh, vaccine, but we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Abrantes Figueredo later on uh, about that. But we have to understand that there have been 5.9 million children in this country who have been infected. Those are the people who have been diagnosed with the infection. We don't know how many have had it and not had testing. And here's, here's where you get the other part of this. 140,000 children in this country have either lost a parent or a caregiver. It's a lot of children, and that's a lot of grief just from this one virus. And we're hoping that we're rapidly approaching a turning point here. And when I say a turning point, we're getting new and better tools, okay? We have a vaccine that is now safe, effective, available, and free. Not a lot of countries can say that, but we have that. And we're about to embark on a pill from Merck that is an antiviral. So let's talk a little bit about what is an antiviral pill. The antiviral is, many people are familiar with the drug 
Tamiflu. Right? Tamiflu is something you take uh, after you feel like you're developing flu symptoms. You go to an urgent care, they swab your nose, you have the flu. And if you're early in that diagnosis, from the onset of symptoms, I believe it's five days, you start taking Tamiflu, and it shortens the course of the illness. It shortens the severity of the illness. So we always hear with the flu, people who are elderly, same thing is COVID from the standpoint that people who are elderly, young children, people with other problems will likely end up in the hospital. By taking Tamiflu, an antiviral medication, you will not and it will shorten the possibility of that outcome. So we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Brantes Figueredo a little bit about the progress and when we might be able to see um, this Merck pill and some of the data available about the Merck drug. But again, it doesn't avoid the illness. Vaccine is crucial to Why do you want to have to treat something that's avoidable? And we've gone through this over and over again with the ivermectin crowd, you know, want to treat COVID with ivermectin. Why do you want to treat something that's avoidable? Get the vaccine. This day in medicine, October 9th, 1562, Dr. Gabriello Fallopius is an Italian anatomist and surgeon. And, and really, his surgery was in regard to female reproductive anatomy. And he coined the term the ovarian tube, vagina, placenta. These were all terms that came from his work. And uh, it was uh, landmark work. But just think, he, he died in 1562. So um, important that we remember on this day uh, some of the people who came before us in the field of medicine. Uh, we've had a lot of testing shortages Uh you know, one of the things we've said right from the beginning of this pandemic some 18 months ago was we need testing, testing, testing. You have to know where your enemy is if you're going to attack that enemy, right? And the only way we could do it, which was, was through as much testing as we can do. Well, I'm happy to see that the United States has purchased $1 billion worth of rapid at-home coronavirus tests. Now, these are not the molecular tests like we hear about, the PCR tests. These are antigen tests. And they're important because they're fast to do. They are less accurate than the PCR test. But just think about it. If you wake up in the morning feeling like you have symptoms consistent with COVID, right, that fever feeling, fatigue, those, those symptoms of general loss of taste and smell, you can do the test as a surveillance tool and know if you should go to work, if you should go to school or not. Right now, we don't have that test where you can do something at home. So I believe that's going to be an important part of our strategy as we go forward. I was somewhat dismayed to hear that in 2004, we actually had a plan the United States had a plan to identify and suppress emerging pandemics. I mean, people did a study on this. 
how do we find viruses that are emerging around the world and design drugs to vaccinate people so we do not have a worldwide pandemic. That's 2004, 16 years ago, folks. Where did that report go? Well, our government decided not to fund it. The funding would have cost about $30 per American. It was about $10 billion to not only fund, but put into effect a strategy to avoid pandemics. And that's before we had a huge pandemic, right? We, would, we, we heard of SARS. We had SARS going on, okay? But we were way ahead, and we decided not to do prevention. And that's been the case here in America. We have not taken the steps at preventing illness, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, controlling risk factors, prevention. We need to develop a new mindset in this country, and we need to impart that on our children. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to talk a little bit about the long-lasting symptoms of COVID-19, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that new Merck drug. In the second half of the program, we're going to talk to my guest, Dr. Jessica Abrantes-Figueredo. If you want to get questions for me to answer live, do it now, info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, in this segment, I want to talk a little bit about something we've put aside, which are the long-lasting symptoms of COVID-19. 37%, in a recent study, 37% of COVID-19 survivors experience at least one symptom three to six months after infection. Now, we don't have a lot of data on this from the standpoint that we've only been at this for 18 months. So we don't know if it's going to be beyond three to six months. But at least 37% of people who are infected not necessarily hospitalized, just people who have the infection will have some symptoms later on. And we've heard a lot about some of the symptoms. A lot of people have loss of taste and smell, uh, severe headaches that persist, inability to concentrate and stay focused on a topic. And that's a big one that uh, comes my way as a neurologist along with those headaches. And generalized fatigue, where they've never been able to get back up to their previous level of exercise or even just getting through the day without having to nap or rest. Now, one that just came out this week to talk about was in the journal Nature, and it was about heart damage. So beyond the initial stages of having COVID, um, it, it real this study they did never it includes people that were never really sick enough to need hospitalization. So they found that in this group of people who were done and it was done through the VA, they looked at over one hundred and fifty one thousand veterans who had COVID nineteen but were not hospitalized, and found that they developed heart failure and deadly blood clots one year later. So it was interesting from that standpoint. 
So what they determined was that in this non-hospitalized population, you're 39 percent. You're at 39 percent increased risk of heart failure, and a 2.2 percent increased risk of blood clots. So again, this is a population who was unvaccinated at the time and developed mild symptoms of COVID-19, and unfortunately, we'll be dealing with lifelong complications from this virus. And it's interesting because when we talk about the 2.2% increased risk of blood clots, uh, it becomes a, a problem not just from a cardiac standpoint, but a peripheral vascular standpoint. Uh, these are people who will develop uh, thrombophlebitis. Um, they will have clots going to their lungs. They will require anticoagulant medications, possibly lifelong. So this is not a virus that we should take lightly. It is a very potent enemy that we are facing in the COVID-19 vaccine, not just from the standpoint of death. So people are saying, well, I got it. It's not that bad. Uh, you have to think long range here. And I think that's where the studies are starting to come about. Again, endorsing the fact that we need to get vaccinated to totally avoid the contagion associated with this virus. Um, the Merck pill that we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, this pill, as I said, much like Tamiflu, is focused on keeping you out of the hospital. So in the studies that have been done, they didn't look at people who are already hospitalized. It, it has no role. If you're in a hospital on an ICU, giving you this new medication is not going to help. The goal is to avoid hospitalization and death and those complications that go with it. In the studies Merck published, um, 775 adults were studied with mild to moderate symptoms. But all of these adults were unvaccinated and had high risk for severe disease. So this is that target population of people who are obese, have heart disease, diabetes, other medical conditions that we know are more likely to have you end up in an intensive care unit. And what they found that when they looked at this group and they compared a group that got the actual drug to those who got the placebo, remember? Double-blinded trial. People don't know what they're getting. Are you getting the medication or are you not getting the medication? These are the types of studies we really look for when we are trying to make important medical decisions. So in this group, 7.3% of the 775 adults who got the drug were either hospitalized or died. When you looked at the group that got the placebo, 14.1% were either hospitalized or died. So there's about a 50% difference in people getting this medication after developing symptoms. And as I said, it requires a lot of careful timing 
in order to administer the drug. What it doesn't look at, and I think is going to be interesting, is administering this drug in people who are vaccinated, because I think it will be even more important and have more effect at keeping people out of the hospital and out of ICU. So people who are at risk, who are vaccinated, develop symptoms, take the medication, again, lowering the risk even further of hospitalization. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Jessica Abrantes Figueredo. She's an infectious disease specialist, and we are going to be talking about, we're going to be answering questions that have come in. We're going to talk more about which way we're heading in the midst of this pandemic. Is there a finish line in sight? I don't know. Let's get her opinion. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you and with my guest today, Dr. Jessica Abrantes Figueredo. Dr. Abrantes Figueredo is an infectious disease specialist, and she is fellowship trained in that area. She has been a tremendous resource for me and all of our listeners. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Hi. Hi, and, and thanks for having me. Well, and uh, congratulations are in order um, now that you are a mother once again. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, let's get right to it. Um, the Merck antiviral drug, we talked a little bit about before you came on. Um, and I just want to know, is this a game changer? Um, is, is this a, a big deal uh, from the standpoint of our battle against this pandemic and COVID-19? Great question, and, you know, we're hoping that it, it will be somewhat of a game-changer, mainly because of what we currently do for COVID and what the treatments are. So even in patients who have mild to moderate disease, the drugs that we do use, like remdesivir, are intravenous or IV and require being in the hospital, um, and even the monoclonal antibody therapy to prevent people from coming to the hospital and being admitted for COVID also are infusions that require people coming to a center, whether it's an ER or an infusion center, to get that therapy. And to have an oral option, you know, would be great if, you know, really the studies, and I know you mentioned some of the studies, the, the numbers are still small, but if it does have an impact, would be something great that people can stay home and take these pills. Um, so when we, when we think about a strategy of increased testing, um, a vaccine that will be helpful in children, and hopefully soon uh, we can start using it in children, as well as this antiviral drug. Oh, is there a finish line coming down the pike? We all hope so. You know, I think as we continue to vaccinate, and a lot of times we start talking about the vaccines as far as the boosters, those additional doses, but like you mentioned, we still have to tackle the children. Our children are not vaccinated, at least those that are 11 and under. Um, and, you know, we still do have a good number of, of persons in the United States and even across the world that are unvaccinated. Um, but I think there will be a finish line. You know, we still have to continue doing what we're doing. The cases now we kind of saw a blip and now they're they're decreasing, but we're also now headed into the winter. It's going to get cold. People are going to stay inside, maybe do things inside. So some of those things, 
like masking, social distancing, even if we're vaccinated, especially around others that may or may not be vaccinated, I think will still be important so that we can still see a decrease um, because now we're going to head into winter and other respiratory viruses may also be an issue. All right. Um, so uh, let's see. And that was, you know, that was one of the things we wanted to talk a little bit about is how flu plays into this. And um, I think we have to be mindful of that. Do you think we'll see more people wearing masks uh, when they start having symptoms? I'm hopeful. In other words, we, we've as yeah. Americans, we've never worn masks when, mm-hmm. you know, we've had a little raspy throat or sneezed a little bit or things like that. Do you think more people will be mindful of that? Because they have to understand that you wear a mask to protect others, not to protect yourself. So mm-hmm. do you think people will be more mindful of wearing a mask when they're experiencing symptoms so they don't spread it to others? I think so, and people definitely should continue to do that. It's been really kind of amazing that we didn't see flu as much last year. And even just to, to divert some of these common coughs, colds that even our kids get, and we saw a decrease in that too, that so I definitely myself will be doing that <laughs> and it's helpful so that you know we don't spread around even just the common cold all right let's get right into the listener questions i thought this was a great question and um this was one um that really talked about the emergent guidance you know the j and j vaccine uh and people having a higher being in a higher risk group for thrombocytopenia and thrombosis and the question really is, should a 30-year-old female receive a J&J booster or should they opt for a messenger RNA vaccine instead? Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I think we the data is still kind of out with that. And, you know, again, it's still a very rare um, occurrence uh, with the talk with the FDA or the meeting that's upcoming in less than a week, actually, I think we'll be hopeful to have more information regarding that, especially if right now it's really recommended the same vaccine that you've gotten will be the same vaccine that you get as a booster. Um, that being said, there's a lot of other studies that are continuing to be to be done with regards to switching vaccines and what would happen if you get vaccine A and then opt for a different subtype of the vaccine. Uh, this brings me to one of my questions, and I guess that is, do you think the J&J vaccine should have been a two-shot vaccine rather than one? Uh, great question. It's hard to answer that, um, you know, because it's still effective, again, with the hospitalizations and deaths. And I think a lot of people harp on the, well, it doesn't prevent infection, you know, but the main reason... So many of these vaccines were done and the way they were studied was really to prevent symptomatic disease and landing people in the hospital or obviously dying. Um, and, and so that's the key thing for folks to, to understand. Um, but, yes, they clearly went on to do their studies to see if they would need a, a booster. So the jury's still out then on whether or not we're going to vaccinate with different vaccinations um, as far as the booster goes. And I guess with J&J, it's a little bit of a, since it's a whole different mechanism um, uh, in terms of not being a messenger RNA vaccine, I, I guess they they really need to look at that um, overall. Right. Um, okay, the next question was, uh, how long will it take for my booster uh, to be effective in protecting me? Uh, so is it the same as like the two weeks? I, for some reason, I remember two weeks uh, after your second shot. Is it the same after a booster? 
Yeah, so it's roughly the same, but we definitely started to see, you know, based on the studies, improvement in the um, antibody response even seven days out, um, probably a little bit less than the two-week mark, too. But I would say the same thing for now, that about two weeks after your booster, and again, that being said, people should still continue doing those mitigation strategies that we know have been working with the masking, the social distancing, especially around folks that are unvaccinated. Um. Since we're on the topic of booster shots, uh, mm-hmm. do you think it's a, I, I hear various opinions in terms of should people who are not at risk or under the age of 65 receive a booster shot or not? Um, do you have an opinion or some data on that? Sure. So and and this brought a lot of contention, right? Because, you know, CDC said one thing, ACIP said another thing, and we have these recommendations of should get the the booster or may get the booster. And the thing people need to understand is that um, the folks who are over the age of 65 and our immunocompromised population, those with high risk, were really the ones that showed probably more of a benefit in getting the booster. Um, and obviously the third dose more so for those that are immunocompromised. A little bit different when talking about third dose versus a booster dose. The booster dose is for the folks who, over time, the immunity will just wane, but they initially had a good response. So in some respects, yes, those folks who are very healthy, no immunocompromising conditions, no other underlying comorbidities either, so you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera, those are the folks that don't necessarily need to rush to the line to get their booster. So those are the patients that I counsel, too, about risk benefits when they need their booster. Um, switching gears, going to the Pfizer vaccine for children. Uh, I, I realize that they've been saying it's going to be one-third the dose of the adult vaccine, but will it be a two-shot vaccine, do you think, or one-shot for children? I think as of now, it will likely be the two-shot. But, yes, there is talks about having that lower dose in children compared to adults. Any difference in safety, you think? Because there are people sitting out there, and and I know this is going to happen. You know, I'm not going to vaccinate them. These kids don't get sick, but we know that's not true because we have at least 5.9 million examples of that. But Right. uh, And people don't know the long-term effects. But there's going to be... I think, even more vaccine hesitancy with children. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the safety? Sure. So the studies have been ongoing even since last year, and thus far safety has been shown to be, you know, not a big issue and still be very safe and effective in children. The rationale with the lower dosing is that the children seem to have a very robust immune response um, and don't necessarily need that higher dose. Um, I think we're going to have more information during the, the FDA VIRBAC meeting, October 24th, I believe it is, where they can really dish out all of the data that they have. I think you're right in the sense that there may be some hesitancy um, with regards to vaccinating our children, but, you know, it's important that we do vaccinate them. Like you said, children do get sick. We've had seen an uptick in infections and even long-term symptoms from the COVID infection. And, you know, you bring up the how people get concerned about the long-term effects of a vaccine. And really, there is no long-term effects even in other types of vaccines. And that's the rationale why all these trials have about two months of data after everyone finishes their, their vaccines, because that's the timing when we're going to see, you know, adverse reactions. 
that being said, we started to appear other things like the thrombocytopenia with thrombosis that you mentioned afterwards, because when you start to vaccinate millions, you're going to then really find and pinpoint the very, very rare circumstances that can happen from vaccines. Um, but I'm going to ask you right out. Uh, I know I don't believe you have a child over the age of five, but if you did, would you vaccinate them as soon as it came out? So I have a seven, a three-year-old, and a oh, four-month-old. Oh, I didn't realize so. that. Okay. <laughs> so okay. I'll, be, I'll be frank on that. Yep. And yes, so our plan is to vaccinate my son. Uh, obviously, my, my daughters wouldn't be able to get the vaccine, um, but the plan would be to vaccinate my son. Uh, as is the case for my grandchildren. I just want people to understand that. Um, to, uh, you know, not just ask us what would you do, but what will you do or what have you done? Yep, Absolutely. Uh, Last week, we had a question about organ donation, and it's interesting that it came up this week that a woman was refused a kidney donation, a a kidney transplant, because she refused to be vaccinated. Um, Can we talk a little, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but I'd like to talk a little bit about people who receive uh, organ donations and transplants and, and the importance of them receiving all vaccines and taking so much caution to protect those organs. Would you mind chatting a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and so I'm, I'm not transplant infectious disease trained, but we definitely, you know, see see about it, hear about it. And really, you know, a transplant is, you know, such an amazing thing, right? And right now, even prior to COVID, these patients need to be, it's very rigorous, and need to have all of their vaccines up to date because really the point of a transplant is to give it to a patient that, yes, would match and everything, but that also has the highest likelihood that they will be able to have that transplant for as long as possible. Um, so I, I understand that rationale that, well, if you aren't going to get the COVID vaccine, especially to get a transplant, what we know about transplant patients is that they are at high risk of getting severe disease against COVID. Um, so it would be something important that they do do. And again, it's something that we already do with, you know, hep B vaccines and other workup that these patients get for prior to getting a transplant. That's so important for people to understand. And actually, that question uh, last week was, would I mandate organ donation? And I explained that um, I personally will only donate an organ to someone else who is an organ donor. Um, and I also found out from people that in many countries, organ donation is the fallback position, meaning when you are born, you are automatically an organ donor unless you opt out. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting that uh, the question about mandates came up. We're going to take a short break, and then I want to get back to Dr. Jessica Brantes Figueredo, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Uh, infectious diseases, and specifically the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Brian Shackman here for Extra Time on WTIC News Talk 1080, 9 to 10 a.m., Monday through Friday. Monday's show, actually, I won't be here. Uh, We'll do a little best of, and the truth is we got two great conversations. Ken Gosselin of the Harvard Current about this money pit that is Rensselaer Field. We'll talk about the future of that, and also Neil the Bus Guy. What is it actually like to be... a bus driver in Connecticut right now. And is this bus driver shortage real? Extra time at WTSE brought to you by New Balance of South Windsor and Avon. We will talk to you on Monday at 9 a.m. on WTSE News Talk 1080. Sure, life's busy. 
but taking a few minutes for your annual mammogram could save you years. At the Comprehensive Women's Health Center at St. Francis Hospital, you'll always get same-day mammogram results, getting you answers without the wait. It's time to make time for your health. Visit trinityhealthofne.org pink and schedule your mammogram today. Visit trinityhealthofne.org pink. That's trinityhealthofne.org pink. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, this morning, 11 till noon, on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back with my guest today, Dr. Jessica Abrantes Figueredo. If you would like to contact or schedule a visit with uh, Dr. Abrantes Figueredo, the phone number is 860-714-5895. She is at Trinity Health of New England and right here in Hartford at St. Francis Hospital. Uh, Jessica, I think uh, one of the things uh, to really uh, discuss has been uh, pregnant women. Last week, uh, we had uh, Dr. Natanzin on and uh, discussed it, but you just went through pregnancy. I have a three-month-old. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience with being vaccinated uh, during pregnancy? Yeah. So it's a question that we get a lot, right? And it's it's very easy for physicians to say that pregnant women should get vaccinated with all the data. But um, being the mom and being on the other side, too, I think it was important for me to also counsel my patients and say, you know, not only am I looking at the data, but I personally had to go through deciding about whether vaccine was, was right for me. And really, given what we know about COVID-19 infection and in pregnancy, even back when I got the vaccine in December, it was a no-brainer for me. You know, women who are pregnant and get infected um, have a higher chance for, you know, severe disease, being admitted, potentially death. And, and not only that, then you also have uh, issues with potentially preterm labor and affecting babies. So for me, I did get vaccinated. It was around five months, about 18, 20 weeks um, that I got my first and then my second dose a few short weeks afterwards. I did fine, typically with the same thing that happens with flu shot. And even, again, in pregnant women, we recommend getting the flu shot during pregnancy if it's around that season or time period. And the same thing with even our Tdap or pertussis vaccine, too, to protect baby. So it's something that I, I feel strongly about. And, you know, all of our the big societies like the Maternal Phenol Medicine, ACOG, all have come out with statements recommending and including recently with the CDC mentioning how important it is for pregnant women to get vaccinated. Uh, Jessica, uh, something you, you probably have some insight into. We've all been nervous about uh, healthcare employees who were refusing to be vaccinated and how this would impact health care here in Connecticut. And, um, you know, there was all this stuff that the, uh, you know, they were going to bring out the National Guard. And I know at the institutions I work at, uh, I don't think we've noticed any difference um, in terms of uh, people who are unvaccinated and decided to leave their jobs. Has that been an issue at all at St. Francis? You know, not really. I think initially, though, it was an issue with knowing that we still had some employees that were unvaccinated. And really, like with employees or healthcare workers or even my patients, I think the big thing was that we still needed to debunk a lot of myths that people had. You know, a lot of the social media anti-vaccine is still so loud and in people's ears, as well as the TV, that it's something that we just have 
have had to continuously do and educate and, you know, show people the data, the evidence that it is safe and effective back from December up until now. We're almost a year out after rolling out the vaccine. So a lot of it, I think, is people still had wrong information, despite having all of this information out there that shows that the vaccines are safe and effective. Jessica, thank you. Thank you for your time today. And really, thank you for everything you do, really, to uh, protect everybody and uh, your work over at St. Francis. Thanks for taking time with us today. Thank you so much. With that, that was my guest today, Dr. Jessica Abrantes Figueredo, who uh, is an infectious disease specialist um, at uh, St. Francis Hospital. And uh, as you know, Trinity Health of New England has really been uh, among the leaders uh, in our community in order to get vaccines out, make vaccines available, um, get testing uh, performed, and really provide information as best they can uh, to everybody. Uh, basically, we are continuing with this battle uh, and uh, hopefully getting more and more help from science. We deal with people who are vaccine hesitant and just there's a big difference between hesitancy in vaccine and defiancy, okay? The people who are vaccine hesitant often have good questions. We get them here. Um, I get them in my office all the time, and I'm happy to sit and spend time and answer their questions. And I've had several situations, one that comes to mind this week where I had a conversation with a patient, uh, and, uh, you know, he went out and got vaccinated and said, you know, it's, it's making sense now. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's key to what we do. So with that, I want to thank Anthony Dorenzo, who's been on the board uh, for us today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, we'll always take your questions at info at alessimd.com. If you missed any part of Healthy Rounds uh, today, you can get the podcast and download that on iTunes or um, Odyssey or wherever you get your uh, your podcasts. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.